You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Hi folks, and welcome to episode 64 of the Let's Talk Photography podcast. I'm your host, Bart Bouchatz. This is the show for January 2019, so I want to start by wishing you all a very happy new year. I hope that with your photography hats on, you had a very productive and rewarding 2018, and hopefully you have equally as good, if not better, a 2019, where you get to take your photography to whatever new level it is you'd like to reach. Uh, this is an interview show to start the year off. Um, I actually technically recorded it at the end of last year. Um, over the Christmas period, um, it was a good time to get interviews done. Uh, I, in fact, I recorded two interviews very close together, one of which you heard for the December show, which was my second uh, chat with Antonio Rosario about street photography. Um, and the interview I'm going to include for this month's show is also a second part in two ways. So... Way, 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 way back in August 2016, on Let's Talk Photography episode 35, I interviewed photographer Jeff Curto. And Jeff, as well as being a photographer, was also a professor, and he taught a course on the history of photography. And so we talked about the history of photography very broadly uh, back in episode 35, with sort of a focus on why why people should want to learn the history of photography. Um, I have certainly gotten a lot from understanding the history of photography it's helped me to improve as a photographer to to sort of see where to to understand where I am in the big picture and so the conversation back in August 2016 focused very much on why history matters and it was a fun interview to do and Jeff is a very intelligent guy so anyway Jeff is a professor was a professor he's now retired and he used to put his history course online. Um, So I would have sat in on his history course many times virtually. Um, And we talk about that in this interview and indeed in the one from August 2016, so I won't dwell on that now. Um, But it's also, so I'm interviewing Jeff again, so it's part two in that sense, but it's also part two in another very different sense. Um, The show before last, so the November show, I titled it My Potted History of Capturing Light. It was basically photography's prehistory and history to date. Uh, But it was looking at it from a very technological point of view. You know, what chemistry needed to be discovered to make photography possible. And of course, photography wasn't born in an instant. It didn't go from nothing to something. So there was this whole prehistory to photography. And that's where, you know, the the November show started. And it went from the prehistory through to the discovery of photography in 1839, and from there right through to the modern day. And it was just looking at the how, you know, how did we capture light? How did we go from fumigating metal plates covered in silver halides over baths of liquid mercury, really healthy that, uh, to our modern digital sensors? I mean, quite a lot happened in between that, and it was a fun and interesting discussion. Or I think it was fun and interesting. I had fun making the show notes. I hope you had fun listening. Um, but that really is only half the story, right? That is the technology. But of course, that technology doesn't exist in a vacuum. That technology 
it, it's part of a it's part of a dance. It's part of a real interplay between the art of photography and well, you could argue the craft, uh, but certainly the mechanics of photography. And they both drive each other. You you know, when technology improves, new things become possible, so the art changes. And there's things the artists want to do that they can't do, which drives the technology. And so it's a push me, pull me, push me, pull me. It, it, you know, um, I couldn't tell you which is which is in the driving seat. Maybe neither are, maybe both are. Um, I was reminded of a line from an Irish poet, uh, W.B. Yeats. You know, how do you separate the dancer from the dance? I don't know if technology is driving the art of photography, the art of photography is driving technology, or is they're both driving each other, or no one knows what they're doing. It, you know, it's a very interesting interplay. So I wanted to have Jeff back on to follow up on that potted history from a technical point of view to talk about that complex interplay between technology and art when it comes to photography. And so that's what I'm going to uh, play for you now. So I had great fun talking to Jeff. Um, There are links in the show notes to Jeff's photo history course. um, And I will also put a link to some of Jeff's photography. And um, as I say, sit back and enjoy the interview. I had great fun recording it and I hope you have as much fun listening to it. Jeff, thank you ever so much for donating some of your valuable time in the middle of this holiday season to come and have a chat with me. It's very much appreciated. Hey, so great to be able to uh, talk with you and uh, thanks for inviting me. I really appreciate it. It's, it's my absolute pleasure. You you have given me so much pleasure over the years because you were a um, a professor at the University of oh the college the College of DuPage Page, that was it College College of DuPage which uh, is in the Chicago suburbs and uh, I retired from that job in uh, spring of 2014 and. I've been doing a lot of other things since then, but uh, left the regular uh, spring and fall semester classroom at that point. So, uh, yeah. So you used to publish your history of photography course as a podcast, which is how I discovered you. Um, are those episodes still available for people? They are. Uh, an entire semester of the history of photography is available on uh, online. Uh, I can uh, give you the link. You can put it in your show notes, photohistory.jeffcurto.com, or you can find it on uh, iTunes too. So a whole semester of that podcast is there, along with all the visuals and uh, everything that, that would be needed to complete the course. Yeah, I mean, I always loved it because it was literally everything. It was like, apart from obviously being able to do the exam, um, but it it was, <laughs> you know, it was a full, it was a full course. Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that surprised me, I, I started doing that podcast with the intention of really just helping my students who were in the classroom be able to have a, a resource to, to, uh, to, to connect with and, you know, replay parts of the class that they may have missed. And uh, much to my surprise, there were a lot of people interested in, in the class that were beyond the classroom. And I think it it was as much of a surprise to my students in the classroom. <laughs> <laughs> like, what? Really? People wanted to listen to an hour, an hour and a half of, uh, of history of photography lecture? And the answer was, yeah, like thousands of people. Yeah, I looked forward so, to it every every week because I would I would put you on on my iPad on the on the um, windowsill above the sink while I was cooking the dinner once a week. It was great. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. I love so, it. Your course was the history of photography and... You 
you told that story in a sort of a hybrid way. You didn't tell it from the point of view of, you know, this technology happened and then this technology happened and this technology happened. And you didn't tell it from the point of view of this artistic idea happened and then this artistic idea happened. You sort of married both of those ways of looking at history into one unified whole, which to me was a fascinating approach to, to a very broad subject. Well, thanks. You know, it, it that had come from a, a a sort of a long, a long interest in history in general, uh, and it also had come from a graduate school professor I'd had uh, at Bennington College in uh, Vermont, uh, Bennington, Vermont, a great guy named Neil Rappaport who had approached the subject in a similar way. But I'd always thought that in order to understand the history of anything, you had to understand not just the history of that thing, but you also had to to understand a little bit of the history of what was happening around that thing, you know how how the how the world worked around that particular thing and what happened to the world during that time. Uh, and once you kind of got that, uh, it it started to open up a whole set of possibilities if you understood uh, what else was happening in the world uh, and and what what that hybrid idea it wasn't always just technology driving the conversation and it wasn't always just art driving the conversation it was some combination of both yeah 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 so the, the, i mean you you were kind enough to come and talk to me a few years ago at this stage on the podcast which was great fun um, and the reason I sort of wanted to have you back now is because what I did for the previous to one episode of the show so a recent episode of the show is I did what I what I named a potted history of photography. Uh, actually, no, I called it a potted history of the recording of light, I think, um, because I decided I would start my story before photography was invented in 1839. And I'm not sure if potted history is a term Americans use, I discovered in hindsight. Um, I think maybe a whistle-stop <laughs> well, tour is what you guys would say. Uh, yeah, potted... Uh, it, it, we would we would sometimes use potted to describe someone who has been overserved at the pub. Oh, uh, okay. No, it wasn't uh, a drunk history of <laughs> photography. <laughs> we might also describe potted to or use potted to describe what what one would do with a plant that one brought in from the outside to be able to have it in the inside. Well, you see, that's interesting because uh, that's where the analogy comes from. Basically, a potted history is a self-contained history. Aha. Uh -huh, all right. Yeah, so, so basically I, I focused only on the tech and I started with sort of the the experiments that sort of hinted at the fact that photography was possible. And then through there, through the, you know, dual invention of photography almost simultaneously in, in at least two places. And it turns out with hindsight, a few more places as well. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and then I sort of rolled it forward right up to and including the, the charge couple device CCD, CCD uh, cameras. But of course, it was a one show. So it really was just a race through the technology, uh, which was an interesting story. But it's really at the it's less than half the story and what sort of fascinates me is the interplay between that change in tech and art because it's not that tech drives art or that art drives tech it's kind of both i guess or or sometimes one well, sometimes the other you know you know one way that i always thought about it was relative to the concept of of linguistic or language syntax you know that that and and I 
An example I would sometimes use in the classroom was uh, the word cool. Okay. The word cool, right? So if I had said to my grandmother, who has been dead for quite a long time, I'm I'm almost 60. So uh, if I had said to my grandmother uh, that I'm cool, she would advise me to put on a sweater uh, or what, what you might call a jumper. Right. Sure. Uh, but uh, if, you know, if I said to, uh, to my, my kids who are in their twenties that I'm cool, uh, they, they would, uh, you know, of course they'd laugh at me because nobody's parents are cool. I say, no, you're not, but, but nice try. You know, <laughs> no, yeah, exactly. So, the, the the sense of what that word means has changed over time uh, and how that word has come to mean a variety of different things, you know, that cool relative to temperature, cool relative to, uh, you know, whether a color is warm or cool uh, and cool relative to one sort of, you know, spot on the spectrum of, of, you know, hip or not. So it, th- that syntax allows us to communicate in a certain way. So uh, if somebody doesn't understand, like my grandmother not understanding the word cool, uh, meaning like, you know, somebody's cool or somebody's, you know, not so cool, uh, that that she didn't have any sense of what that syntactical meaning of that word might have meant. But you fast forward a few years to somebody who did understand that, and now you get this whole other set of possible meanings. So what someone could say with a given technology uh, it was was certainly tied to what that technology could and couldn't do. Right. So, okay. So, so if, you know, would an example ahead. be that while our exposure times were still in the order of minutes, you couldn't take a sports shot? Correct. Correct. So I often referred to the, uh, or refer, I guess, to say a 19th century wet plate collodion photographer carrying his or her syntax around on their back. Right. You know, if they wanted to, if they wanted to go out and make a photograph of a mountainscape, they had to pack up all of the stuff, including all of their darkroom supplies, and they had to hike out into the mountainscape, set up their darkroom tent, get everything all in order, coat a plate, make the exposure, you know, set up the camera, focus it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, make the exposure, develop the plate before it dried out, and then check to see if they had an accurate photograph of what they thought they were going to make a photograph of. So, uh, whereas, of course, our syntax is drive to the mountain, get out of the car, uh, have your camera on the passenger seat, maybe not even get out of the car, just roll, roll down the window. Grab your iPhone and, out of your pocket, snap a picture exactly. in two seconds, exactly. post it on Snapchat, and you don't know how to leave. <laughs> exactly. So it, that piece uh, allowed certain photographers at certain times to say certain things. And I think that there was an, an impetus to sort of drive things forward in a certain way to say, oh, well, once you got, uh, you know, once somebody recognized that, hey, with the daguerreotype, for example, 
uh, I only have a single image Hmm. and I can't easily share that picture. That's part of that image's syntax, right? I make one picture the plate that was in the camera is the plate that is held in your hand. And the only way to reproduce it is either make another picture, which is going to be patently different because something will change in the interim Mm -hmm. or possibly uh, to reproduce that picture by taking a picture of it. But then you get some generative loss. So the, the, the daguerreotype photographer only had that piece of syntax. They couldn't distribute their picture very easily. And that is in, at least in part what prompted uh, wet plate collodion or calotype paper, negative paper, positive. And, you know, each of those had their own sort of way of being able to communicate as well. So, um, so it's, it's, it it is a a sort of a push me pull you in a way, right? That, so there's a that, desire to be able to express some things, which isn't possible. So that's pushing the technology, and then once the technology moves forward, this new syntax is available, and people go mad because hey, I can now do these things I could never do before. Exactly, and the same thing that happened, you know, as as we move forward to roll film as opposed to uh, plates or sheets of film that now you've got the possibility of taking many pictures one after the other without having to change plates. Mm. And, you know, of course uh, that ends up uh, being sort of another piece of the, of the puzzle. Uh, And, and as we moved forward to the digital era, you know, now we have uh, the possibility of making thousands of photographs without having to change the recording medium. Um, and a whole bunch of other possibilities have occurred with with the digital era too, with being able to change the ISO with the turn of a button as opposed to needing to change the roll of film that's in the camera. So, yeah. gosh, it's I mean it it kind of never ends. And and it, and but really, that's the story of the medium is is a constant changing of technological bits and pieces that enabled certain things or uh, allowed certain things to happen. And would it be fair to say that there an awful lot of it is unintended consequences? So there's there's some sort of a need, there's a desire for a thing, and that thing is delivered, and then you get that, okay, well, that solves my problem I knew I had. And then that opens up creativity to the point where things no one ever envisaged suddenly become possible. So as sort of as an analogy, when we got television, the first thing everyone did was put on plays as if, te- you know, treat television like a theater or, you know. You exactly. Know, I mean, that's probably the best example where, the, you know, very early television was, was basically stage theatre, only the stage was moved and put into your sitting room. And then people realised, well, actually, why do, why do we need to stick to that old paradigm? This new technology allows us to do all these cool things. And, you know, television became not a way of delivering old media, but a whole new thing. And, you know, I think we're we're seeing an extension of that I mean, to keep with that analogy, you know, that that I rarely anymore watch television when it's you know the the hour that that show is broadcast you know instead i watch it when i want to asynchronously from when it you know when it was broadcast so uh my, even, my even nieces, that piece of technology is changing my nieces don't understand the concept that television has time it doesn't <laughs> compute for them because yeah. they watch you know i want to watch mickey okay Mickey's Playhouse is on. Here it is. Yeah, straight away. I mean, the the concept that we would have to organize our day around television, it genuinely does not compute. 
It's just, what? What are you talking about, Uncle? You're, you're silly. Okay. Well, and you know, another thing that just came to mind when uh, when we were talking there about small format cameras, 35 millimeter cameras. When I first started teaching photography in the 1980s uh, with film, you know, one of the things I would tell a student in my in my photography class, you know, intermediate level, even a beginning level class, I would say, you know, I'm expecting you to shoot two 36 exposure rolls of film a week. And invariably in that first class, people would just like they would you know, gasp <gasps> and they'd say, are you kidding? When am I ever going to be able to find 72 things because I was assuming a 36 exposure roll. Yeah. <laughs> when am I ever going to find 72 things that I could possibly photograph in a week? Uh, you know, and then fast forward to the digital era, and it was not unusual for a student to come for a critique with, you know, four or 500 photographs. And, you know, my, my, <laughs> my, my comment to them was, you know, give me, give me 20. <laughs> yeah, certainly it was. Don't you don't get them to shoot more. Get them to edit more, as in edit, as in the you know the act of removing, as opposed to exactly, exactly. So, uh, you know, so and I I think one of the things that the digital realm certainly has given us is this ability to to make bazillions of photographs, as many as we want, with you know the only sort of penalty being the time penalty of you know how how much time do we want or can we afford to spend uh going through that take and finding the the pictures that we want out of that out of that set of a thousand pictures we took this afternoon of you know multiple thousand variations of one thing and you know that just goes back to that whole 19th century paradigm right where it, it, if a photographer had to prepare a single glass plate just prior to exposure and develop it just after exposure as they did with wet plate collodion. Well, what that meant was they were going to be an awful lot more careful with what it was that they were photographing. Right. And, you know, given I, I spent the, the, the majority of my career, I was, has been spent photographing with a large format, four by five camera. And by golly, you were careful. You were careful with those exposures, you know, or you are careful because not only does it cost money, but it takes time to set up the camera and make sure that everything is, is right. And you didn't miss very often, you know, you didn't get a, a failed image very often at all. But was that because you weren't liberated to take chances or um, I think because it was a more thoughtful it or it is a more thoughtful process. I think I would I would equate it for for many of your listeners uh, the, to the difference between putting your camera on a tripod and walking around with the tripod back in your in your house. Right. You know, if you put the camera on a tripod, uh, you have to put the tripod in a particular place, and you have to think about what that place means relative to the overall sort of look and feel of what it is that you're going to do and how much is in the frame and how much is out of the frame and so forth. So I, I think that 
that is, you know, sort of the 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 twenty first century uh, analogy is uh, is a tripod like analogy that, you know, whether you shoot with a tripod or not, um, is determining how how careful you are, and whether or not you take risks might have to do with, you know, how fast you can set the tripod up again for the next picture. And it swings in roundabouts to that, right? Because on the one hand, that that very careful, measured approach will lead to masterpieces like the the, the stuff Ansel Adams did. But you can't be an Henri Cartier-Bresson if, if you can't just snap. And if you can't kind of roll with that moment. Um, and I, I think that's one of the things that, that today's uh, ability to, to, to take many, many, many pictures all in a row... Uh, the ability to even the the ability to do a burst. I mean, I mm. I think back to the to the first time that I shot with a thirty five millimeter film camera with a motor drive advance on it, and I was shooting a football game, uh, American football, but not that it matters. But uh, I was shooting a football game, and I couldn't believe that I was at the end of the roll after you know just a few seconds right <laughs> you know of course now we can just keep uh, banging on until uh until the buffer fills up or or the memory until, card whatever comes first or the memory card you know whichever comes first so uh but you know now we've got these ginormous memory cards that you know we can we can just keep it going so that means that we now need to have a new skill to get good photographs out which is the skill to sort through all that you know, good and bad and find the diamonds in the rough. So I guess there's never a free lunch because, you know, you end up having to find the new, you know, it, it becomes about a different skill. You know, the, the skill used to be taking the picture at the perfect moment. Well, that's taken care of now with the motor drive. Now the new skill is finding that picture so you can share it. Absolutely. And I think, you know, that one of the things that, you know, you said something about there's no free lunch. And I have always thought about photography as being about a trade-off, Right. You know, there's, there's, you know, it, you have to get something in order to give something, you know, even if you're just talking about the battle between lots of depth of field and being able to freeze motion with a fast shutter speed, Hmm. you know, you, you can't get one without the other. Yes. Yeah. So you're always having to make trade-offs and you're going to like, well, yeah, yeah. you know, this isn't going to work unless, okay, well, I guess I'm going to have to do a slightly less long exposure or. Yeah, you're always there's always a trade off. You never you, you're right. It's it's never the free lunch. You always yeah, there's always something out to get you. Yep. Um So thinking back, so the, you know the history of photography stretches out. For, I guess we'll start today in in 1839, knowing that there was a whole bunch of cool science happening before then to to get us ready for it. Yep. But the people who made that breakthrough, Daguerre and Fox Talbot. What were they? What was the problem they were trying to solve in their minds? What were they trying to do? Were they trying to to, to be a better painter, or were they? What was it they were trying to do? Well, you know, I think that that uh, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back up a little bit, okay. which is uh, which is to back up to another important French guy, Nieps. Uh, Nieps was a partner of Daguerre's, and he had been experimenting with. Uh, optical chemical technologies prior to the time that that Daguerre uh, uh, began to experiment with things, and the two of them formed a partnership. And then Nieps died, and Daguerre uh, kind of very uh, 
uh, you know, I'm sure there's some French people listening, so I don't want to offend them, but in a very sort of French uh, manner said, you know, let's call this the daguerreotype. Yeah, not the neepsotype, you know, in honor of his dead colleague. No, 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 daguerreotype, me. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. But uh, to to answer your real question, uh, to, to draw faster, that was really the thing. You know, they so wanted the, to be able to draw faster or more accurately. Um, so for, the non-reproducibility then doesn't really come into his mind as a drawback, because if I take out a piece of paper and a pencil, I only get one drawing. So if I take it as a daguerreotype, I get one drawing. But man, was that easy. Exactly. You know, so so that's why the daguerreotype ascended, uh, you know, that and the fact that the daguerreotype was incredibly highly detailed if you've ever seen one, I mean, they're incredible to look at because you can look at them with magnifying glasses and in a three-quarter length portrait, see the hairs coming out of somebody's nose. You know, it's they're astonishing in terms of their resolving power. Um, but, you know, that was one reason that they ascended and that the daguerreotype sort of became more popular than the positive negative. But the other was, gosh, people didn't really care so much. I mean, the portrait which was about 90% of all daguerreotypes ever made. The portrait painting was pretty much what people understood, you know, that that there was one, and if you, you know, aged or something changed about you, you might have another one done, but yeah. only if you had a lot of money. So, uh, and so the portrait painting was primarily of people who were moneyed and well-to-do and important or uh, or at least perceived themselves as important. Uh, and so the daguerreotype is a one of a kind image. Gosh, it, you know, it, it didn't really matter that much that it was just a one of a kind image, uh, until people began to recognize that distribution of these pictures became important. And by golly, and, you know, if we were to sort of snap forward to our present time, isn't that the most important thing about digital photography is its ability to be shared instantaneously uh, in the, you know, the tens of thousands uh, across the globe. Because we accepted, particularly in the early days of digital, we accepted a really big drop in quality in exchange for that instant reproducibility. Absolutely. Uh, And it, it really did uh, it, you know, we were all seduced by it. Uh, And I'm, I'm still fascinated. I, I just was, noticing somebody the other day that I had met who had uh, one of these uh, Fuji Instax cameras along. And, you know, she also had uh, a digital camera with her, uh, but she was making these Fuji Instax pictures as well. Um, And, you know, the ability to share that picture by giving it to someone and giving someone a physical copy Mm. and how thrilled people were by that physical copy because it is so different now. So, you know, <laughs> it it's another it's another piece of the, the trade back, right? The trade off, you know, snapping back to other technologies. Yeah, the, the percentage of photographs I've taken that have ever entered the real physical realm must be a fraction of 1%. And and yet when, you know, when we think about the film world, Every film photograph that we ever made, if you know, if we were back in the darkroom days, uh, every film photograph got printed somehow, whether it was a contact sheet that you would use to select from or, yeah. you know, even when I was shooting commercial work for for clients with uh, either color transparency film or 
with color negative film, every image got viewed, uh, color transparency, they'd get viewed. And then the ones that needed to be reproduced were reproduced. But I shot a ton of color film and I'd print all of it so that I could see it and find out which ones were the ones that, that I wanted to make finished prints from. So, uh, but you know, now we, you're right. We don't, we don't print as many, although, you know, that's one of my sort of soapboxes is, you know, when I think back about the, some of the ways that I have stored digital photographs in the years since I've been making them, uh, you know, I, I would be hard pressed to go back and find the zip drive and the zip disks, uh, you know, or the, I don't even remember Bernoulli, you know, as Bernoulli boxes and Bernoulli cartridges before that, you know, try and find those things, try and figure out how to connect them to our modern devices uh, or even the optical discs, you know, CDs or DVDs that we might have heard. I'm sitting images. here by pure accident in front of three computers because I bought a new one and I haven't got rid of the old one yet and I have my laptop, but give me a disc and there is nowhere for me to put it in this room. <laughs> it, it doesn't go in. There's, none of these computers will take one. So, you know, one of my soapboxes really is print stuff, print stuff. You know, every, especially around this time of the holiday season, uh, I go through my archive of of images that I've made over the year and uh, I I make a bunch of prints. I make a bunch of prints of, of the my friends and my family and I put a copy of those prints in in a box uh, so that I have a physical copy of that thing. And then I give those people a, you know, a print. Oftentimes, if they're, you know, my family member, I might give it to them in a frame hmm. so that I have, you know, a tangible uh, uh, product uh, to give someone. And then, of course, I make prints as I go along of the images that I really like uh that I've made throughout the year. And I think that's another, another piece of the puzzle that we sometimes forget. I mean, how many of us have made a print from a digital photograph and then discovered once you make the print that you missed something that you wanted to change or alter or retouch or whatever uh, in the actual physical file that you didn't really even notice until you printed it to eight by 10 or bigger. Yeah, it does. It really changes a photograph. Um, I, I, in, I work in a university. Um, I'm not, a, not in an academic position, but, you know, nonetheless, it's still a university. So that has a mm-hmm. bunch of advantages. Mm-hmm. And one of the coolest things I discovered a few years ago is that there is an annual exhibition of art created by university staff and students. And initially, they wouldn't allow photography. They said that wasn't an art. And so with a little bit of help from what I'd learned from listening to your podcast, I created, I wrote an academic argument and I sent it into the the organizing committee and they wrote back and they went, excellent point, Mr. Bouchotts. Um, We will be allowing photography. I look forward to seeing your work. I was like, oh, Oh, just shot myself here. <laughs> so <clears throat> since careful, then... Careful of what you ask for. You're right. So since then, every year I do a canvas print and I send it off to this exhibition every single year. And it forces me to choose a photograph to print as a big canvas, which has been really interesting to do because they're very different things when I take them off my screen 
and get them on a canvas. The, the fact that they're not backlit but frontlit really can change how an image feels. And there's been a few times, twice actually, this happened where I got the, I got the canvas and I went, nope. Um, despite the fact that it cost me 35 euro, I went and chose a different photograph and got another canvas made and then put the second one into the exhibition because I was like, I'm not signing my name to that because I physically have to sign my name to it, of course. Right, right. I'm not putting my name to that. <laughs> well, I, I, I applaud you for uh, convincing the powers that be at your university that photography is, in fact, an art because that's another, you know, as you know from, from listening to the history of photography, uh, class that I that I produced as a podcast, you know, that struggle of whether or not photography was an art is another piece of the piece of the photographic history puzzle. Is it an art? Is it a copying mechanism? Uh, If it's if it's an art, how does that art differ from uh, the the other kinds of plastic arts of, you know, painting, drawing, sculpture, certainly uh, printmaking, speaking there of lithography mm. or intaglio printing, you know, how do that, you know, how, how could you justify this machine based art form as an art? And, you know, that was another struggle that photographers had uh, from the sort of late 19th century, all the way through the middle or, or late of parts of the 20th century and then slowly but surely it began to be accepted by museums and 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 uh galleries that that showed other kinds of art uh and recognized as an art form in and of itself so, uh, and, and it, it's a different sort of an art though yeah so how early in photography's history would would people have shifted from oh wow this thing is so good at capturing reality to why don't i use this to construct reality how early did that of you know that major transition started to happen boy early uh you know one of the one of the things that i remember you know a, a class where i uh you know in in the in the in my history of photography class i did a sort of uh a potted uh, <laughs> history of photography at the very beginning i sort of raced through the medium so that everybody in the class had a sort of understanding of what happened and when it happened and and who did what and then I went back and looked at looked at things thematically, and one of the themes that I looked at uh, it regularly was the the impetus to change the the camera based image. And I, I remember starting off that class session by saying that some people are never satisfied. You know, here here you had something that people had been clamoring for, you know, a, a, a medium that depicted the way the world looked exactly without needing somebody to be supremely talented to put down every nuance of the way the world looked and then almost right after photography's invention in the in the 1830s you know 1839 uh, is the sort of time that we mark as the beginning of the medium but in the 1840s the 1850s people were starting to alter the the camera based image uh, first by drawing on them, uh, you know, or erasing pieces of of the image, especially after negative positive imaging uh, became popular. And then later by doing, you know, sort of sleight of hand tricks, uh, you know, long exposures to make 
uh, pictures of purported ghosts. So, right. you know, if you if you had a long exposure and somebody dressed in a bed sheet uh, and they moved during that exposure, uh, you know, they were the ghost of your beloved and departed Uncle Henry. Um, so, right. Right. Uh, you know, the the idea that that you could manipulate this realistic thing was was there from the very beginning. And I remember, you know, years ago when digital photography first came on the scene and it was before we had digital cameras but we did have photoshop and there was this hue and cry from the traditionalists in the photography world saying oh my god this is awful you know <laughs> photographers are now going to be able to change things in their images and all i did was just go go and dig up pictures from the 1840s and the 1850s and the 1860s and the 1920s and the 1930s and so forth and so on of people changing the picture because it wasn't exactly what they wanted it to be. So, uh, you know, the, the fear of Photoshop was the same as the fear of photography itself when, when photography came on the scene. I remember getting into a heated argument about HDR. And I believe I won the argument by saying, yeah, well, Gustave Le Grey was added in the 1800s, so it's nothing new. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, the, the idea of making separate images and compositing them together is something that has been practiced since nearly the very beginning of the medium. Uh, and, you know, people, I saw some article, I didn't even click on it the other day, some article on some one of these, you know, photo websites. Uh, are these photographers cheating? Then I looked at the at the headline and I I thought about clicking on it and I I thought no that's I I've, I've got better things to do with my time I know the answer it's no uh, yeah they're either <laughs> just being creative or they're lying so if they're a documentary <laughs> photographer they're lying they're um, lying and, right and if well, they're not they're being another, artists now wait wait a second though because that's okay. another piece so when did the camera ever tell the truth. It only helped to tell the truth to people who were being honest. I would be my answer right. to that. Well, and, you know, one of the things when, you know, when people started to say that, you know, the camera never lies. <laughs> well, the camera, the camera never lies as long as uh, the, the, the reality of the situation is seen through a frame where the frame is delineated at a certain top and bottom and left and right with a certain focal length of lens, with a certain kind of recording material, whether it's black and white film or color film or digital photography. You know, like to say that the camera never lies is to say that, you know, I don't know how many thousands of photographs I can think of in the in my head where, and th photographs I've made, photographs that are well known, where the reality of the scene would completely change if the camera was panned left or right or up or down, you know, 10 degrees mm -hmm. and some other piece of the scene was included or some piece of the scene was excluded. Um, and really to me, that's where the sort of artistry of photography comes in, which is it's the only medium where uh, you start with everything and your job is to edit out what doesn't matter. 
Right. It's the opposite you of the know. blank page dilemma. Right. It's the, everything in the universe is on your page. Now choose. And I always hate, you know, I went to art school. So, you know, I hated the whole, I learned how to draw and anybody can learn how to draw. Uh, I learned how to draw. I learned how to paint. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> but I hated that whole process of somebody giving me this blank space and telling me to fill it up with marks you know, when do I, where do I start? What do I start with? And then, man, the worst part, when, when is it finished? <laughs> How do I know when to stop? You know, so uh, with photography, it's really, for me, at least it's usually, you know, of course there's the post-production stuff, but it's usually finished when I decide what is or isn't in the frame. Oh dear! I think I've just lost you. Oh, are yeah, you back, Jeff? I lost you there for one second. I'm, I I think I'm back. I don't. Well, I can know. hear you again, so we'll count that as back. Oh, all right. I uh, I I don't, I don't know if you. I don't want to uh, interrupt this to to have you have something to edit in the middle of this, but I've been noticing that the green circle around my head has been flashing a bit. I assume mm-hmm. that means that it's a tenuous connection. It may do. You've been pretty solid, actually. Anyway, we'll we'll keep going. And I, I don't I don't I don't believe in editing, so the listeners will hear all this. Um, because all right. I believe in all having right. a. I think the, the the description I give. So normally I would do a, a a panel show for my for my Apple show, and I would say to people, pretend we're in the pub having a pint, talking about Apple news. So that's, <laughs> that's sort of the vibe I'm going. Oh, I should have. You know, it's it's. Uh, I we're recording this right at about cocktail time here in oh. in oh. the in the middle west of the United States. So I should have had a glass of wine with me uh you know but i i failed well <laughs> if we have you on again jeff by all means feel free to to bring along something to imbibe on um yeah so you were you were just basically saying that you know photography is the inverse of the blank page it's the everything is at your disposal and i guess we were talking about you know if the camera never lies and i, I, I mean I, I sort of think does the camera ever tell the truth? Because the dynamic range of a camera is not the same as my eye. So straight away, shadows are wrong. Things are different. So it's it's yep. lying already. Uh, there's things I see the camera doesn't see. There's things the camera sees that I don't see because the frequency response isn't exactly the same either. So t- to me, it just never tells the truth. And so it, it's a tool you can use to illustrate a story, but you're trusting the storyteller. You know, I always think about, you know, the the... The idea back, you know, when I when I was learning photography and when I was beginning to teach photography of the normal lens, right, the 50 mm-hmm. millimeter lens for the 35 millimeter camera and, you know, the normal lens because it approximated the normal field of view. Um, and then I thought to myself, well, what if I were driving a car? <laughs> you know, that's not my normal field of view when driving a car because you're, you're constantly looking at everything. And then, you know, even just, you know, I I went for a walk earlier today and, you know, your field of view is always changing. Yeah. It's a little, a little icy here uh, in Wisconsin where I live. Uh, And, uh, you know, I had to be looking at the ground some of the time and looking up at the scenery other parts of the time. And, you know, what's, what's the normal field of view and how does, photography mimic our our actual human vision uh, it it really doesn't it it is its own separate way of looking at the world yes 
Who, you, I'm sure you'll know this, but I can't remember which photographer it was. You said that they photograph because they want to see what things look like photographed. Who's that? Oh, man. You know, it. I always I always have to look that one up. It's either Lee Friedlander uh, or Gary Winogrand. I think it's Winogrand. And, and now that you I say think the name, it's I think it's Winogrand. I think it's Winogrand, too. Uh, yeah, I want to see what the picture looks like. I want to see what that thing looks like photographed. And the, the right? first time so, I heard you say that on the history of photography, I thought, "Whoa, what a strange guy!" And then, as I got more experience with photography, I was like, "Yeah, I, I get it now." The, the world and a picture of the world—they often look very different to each other. Well, you know, we see in three dimensions, right? You know, our our human vision uses depth as a big cue, right? We're right. we're constantly cueing on what is depth and what is not and you know it's it's how we get around in the world and of course the camera flattens all that out to two dimensions and you know we can use all kinds of bits and pieces of composition to help the viewer understand that the rock is in the foreground and the mountain is in the background but um yeah it takes constant effort and it's so easy to miss because if i'm standing there taking a picture of you and there's a stop sign behind you i don't think that stop sign is sprouting out of your head because i have two eyeballs and they're slightly apart and i just know they're not the same but when i take that picture goodness me does it look like that stop sign is sprouting out of your head yep absolutely uh and uh you know it uh i it it's it's one of those things that as a new photographer uh, most people who you know are just picking up photography to to do in a more sort of serious way it's one of the first sort of lessons that they have to learn is how different the 2d world is from the 3d world that we walk around in yeah um so photography obviously exists within a context and so you you have the technology is part of that context and the art is part of the context and they feed off each other but I guess photography didn't exist in, in a complete vacuum either. So w- how much was the other parallel arts pinging off photography as well? Was painting influencing photography and was photography influencing painting? Were, were oh, they man, pinging that, off each other too? That's, that, there's, that's, that's my, uh, uh, my master's thesis Ooh. in a nutshell there, was the, that, that interaction between photography and painting. And... You know, the fact that we had mentioned earlier that, you know, these these early photographers inventing this new technology, they wanted to draw faster. They wanted to draw uh, more accurately. Hmm. And so, you know, they they were they were trying to solve a problem. uh, But at the same time, there was this, you know, increased sense of of need for for detailed pictures of the world and uh, I always link all of that stuff together, that the the world of the visual artist, whether it was a painter or somebody who was drawing or somebody who was making lithographs, uh, that world of the visual artist, man, they they were excited about photography, but also terrified of it because they were afraid that it might put them out of business, right? That mm. was a whole nother piece of that. You know, if the portrait painter saw the photograph and saw how easy, relatively speaking, it was to make an accurate likeness of someone. Wow, what what happens to what I do for a living if I'm a portrait painter? Um, and then, you know, 
there's the other part that you had mentioned very early on in our conversation here about how important it was uh, to, or in my mind, how important it is to look at everything around a particular piece of technology. And to my mind, it doesn't matter which piece of technology it is, whether it's the automobile or, you know, the, the camera, that the time that photography was invented in the early to mid uh, 19th century also happened to be a time of much greater and broader means of travel. So the railroad, the steamship, those things were starting to make inroads and people were beginning to travel farther in the world, see more things, uh, come back with stories about those places that they would travel from their from their home, whether that whether they were traveling for you know five miles or five hundred miles, didn't really matter. They began to trust the other stories they'd heard beforehand, or the painted or drawn representations of what they'd gone to see and come back to report on. They were beginning to trust those a lot less. So the camera was a part of uh, of the way that they could now describe the world more accurately to their friends and family and acquaintances uh, in, in a, in a different way. So yeah, it, it, it was the, the art world was uh, drawn up in that uh, the world of other kinds of technology, specifically for me, the technologies of travel, uh, especially steamships and railroads canals uh, that were being dug to be able to facilitate transportation over greater distances, all that stuff factors in to this sort of desire or climate of need uh, for photography or other kinds of image making that was literal and real uh, that described the world more accurately. So you're describing, you know, the, the photographer, not the photographer, the, the painter's fear of photography was, oh my God, do, do, you know, if my job is to accurately capture detail, then this camera thing can capture detail way more accurately than I can. So I'm in deep trouble. But then I guess there must have been other artists who thought, oh, brilliant. I don't have Absolutely. to be accurate anymore. Saw the accuracy. That's their problem over there with their daguerreotypes and stuff. They can do the accuracy. Bit. I'm just going to have fun now. And, you know, there's some there's some quote that I have in my notes for the history of photography that I, I'll, I'll, you know, sort of... Uh, uh, kind of just give a generalized synopsis of, but it's by Picasso. And, you know, he said, why would I bother trying to record the world accurately when the camera already does that? It would be stupid to try that. Why don't I use my newly found uh, freedom to be able to do something new and something different and to be able to play with line and shape and tone and color and the, the actual material of paint in a different way, uh, simply because I can now. I do have this ability to do that. So you could argue that the camera is responsible for great artists like Picasso. Absolutely. You know, that, that, the, that once, and it, you really, you know, if you, if you look at the whole thing sort of uh, not in the vacuum of just photography, look at the history of art, uh, the history of literature, the history of music, all of those things, that you begin to see these uh, relationships, these synergies occurring uh, between one medium and the other medium. 
and they begin to push and pull each other in different ways uh, that once photography be begins to, you know, sort of ascend, uh, so does abstract painting. So does the idea of, uh, uh, of color field painting or uh, non-representational painting because painters were free to do those kinds of things now. Um, and I, I think you also see things like, you know, uh, jazz and bebop music uh, occurring at the same time that those kinds of things were happening in the art world and the photographic world that, you know, you were beginning to see abstraction and the and, and pictures that weren't literally of the world, but more sort of interpreting the world in, in certain ways. And by pictures, I mean both painted pictures and photographic pictures. So I'm, I'm sorry, to, just a Christmas that photography probably actually changed what it was that someone felt made a portrait a, a good portrait or a painting a good painting. Because before photography, I imagine the you know the the hallmark of a good portrait painter would be someone who could capture your likeness, someone like Vermeer who was probably using a camera obscura to get really realistic yep. images. And then after the camera comes along, what we consider to be a good portrait is something that captures the feel of a person, the energy of a person, as opposed to the Although, physicality of a person. I think that that a good painted portrait can and often does do that. I mean, I'll, I'll use the fairly obvious example of, of uh, the Mona Lisa, right? Mm. That, you know, it, there's something about her look in that painting that has captivated people for centuries, right? That there's, you know, why do we keep looking at this sort of odd expression that she has in her face or this way of, uh, of of looking back at us from that from that portrait, so I think it's probably the same, but um, employed in a different way, um, you know. And, and I, but I, uh, because I think that that one of the things that that still works is when you see a really beautifully painted portrait of someone that captures some aspect of that person's personality, it's as effective as a beautifully photographed portrait of that same person or another person. Yeah. Is it what, anyway. what Rick is saying around in my head at the moment is, so the the university where I work in was historically um, a, a seminary for training priests. And so it has a very long history. It's the, the oldest Catholic university in Ireland. And there's a cloister in which hang portraits of every president of the university. Actually, no, it's every primate of Ireland for as long as the universities existed. Hmm. And they're in chronological order. So as you're walking up this corridor, there is portrait after portrait after portrait after portrait, and they're all painted portraits. But one side of the corridor is so different to the other side of the corridor. So the most recent side of the corridor you can hardly make out the detail in one of the cardinal's faces because it's painted with this literally a broad brush. But he's his red cardinal robes on an electric blue background in these impressionistic swooshes of the paintbrush. And at the other end of the corridor is the most millimetre-perfect brushwork to make the most photorealistic painting you've ever seen. <laughs> I love it. You know, and that I think that just that plays to this interactive push me pull you that 
photography and the plastic arts have had since the advent of photography, right? There's this yeah. sense that that uh, photography enables a painter to say, well, let's treat this subject impressionistically, especially because somebody who is recent, let's just say recent from the 20th century, the beginning of the 20th century on, is likely to have had a, a very accurate photographic likeness as well as a painted likeness. So it frees the painter to do something that is more of an impression of who that person is. Um, but, you know, I would also say that it's possible for the photographer to create an impressionistic image of what that person feels like as much as what they look like. So, you know, all bets are off, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, it's a free for all. Yeah. Uh, well, Jeff, we, we've come to about an hour in, so um, thank you very much for giving of your time. Is there anything that you think that we really should have hit on in this conversation that I just didn't manage to steer us towards? No, I, you know, I don't think so. I, you know, we we had corresponded briefly via email about the sort of general topic, and I think we we hit all the all the high points. Um, you know, I I I think that one of the things that that I've always thought is, uh, and I, you know, I taught history of photography at, at my college for almost 30 years um, from the time that I began teaching there until the time that I retired. And what was interesting about teaching that class is that a, a lot of the students, it was a required course in our department. So every student who completed a degree program in photography had to take the history of photography class. And many students thinking, oh, my God, it's a history of photography, would leave it until the very end of their studies. And invariably, those people would uh, come out the other end of the class at the end of it and say, oh, I really wish I had taken that at the beginning of my study of photography, because it really helped me understand not only my own place in the medium, but it helped me to understand all of the ways in which I've learned photography and the value that each one of those ways of learning has brought me, uh, you know, into where I am uh, in, in my present uh, status as a photographer. So we always encourage students to take that history of photography class early. And so I guess I would encourage listeners to, you know, certainly go and and uh, take a look at, at my history of photography podcast, uh, which is out there if, if you want to listen to it. Uh, or, you know, find a, a, a book about the history of photography or listen to your, your potted version of the history of photography or really just familiarize yourself with what has happened before when we are here in this particular moment uh, and what is going to happen on into the future. And, and what's going to happen on into the future is really presaged by what's already happened. You know, the, the digital revolution in photography is, is in a way not really anything new. Right. It was preceded by the, the, the evolution from black and white film to color film, from uh, glass plate negatives to flexible film negatives, from daguerreotypes to glass plate negatives, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And every time along the way, everybody thought, wow, this is such a sea change. I wonder if we'll ever go backwards in time. And, um, 
And you know, the only thing I can point to is I was just looking through a catalog of uh, of classes that were going to be offered at uh, an American uh, photography sort of summer camp kind of a thing. And one of them was a wet plate collodion class. Oh, wow. So, you know, so it's still there. People are still using it. There's still uh, a reason to to go back in time and use that 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 photographic syntax uh, because it has a particular look and feel. Um, just like the word cool can mean uh, both, you know, it's cool in this room and uh, that is a really cool shirt you're wearing. So, uh, you know, so I would, I would encourage everyone to at least become partially acquainted with the history of the medium, because, uh, you know, it's sort of like, uh, you know, (laughs) one of the things I always have said is if you decided that you wanted to become a novelist, uh, but you'd never read one. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't be much of a novelist. <laughs> you wouldn't be much of a novelist. You got to know what the form is and you got to know what it is that has made good ones and not so good ones. And so acquainting yourself with who's come before you really will really help you uh, uh, become a better photographer, I think. Yeah, I, I will completely back you up on that and absolutely second that recommendation because I think I I learned so much and it helped me so much to develop as a photographer to, to understand how we got to now. It's Yep. And the the motivations haven't really changed that much. You know, what's possible keeps changing, but what's driving people doesn't really change. It's the same desires to express not just what it is, but what you, what it makes you feel. The same arguments seem to happen over and over again. You know, you know, everything is the worst thing ever until everyone realizes actually, no, it's really quite cool and it's made things better. <laughs> you know, it's, it's always the end of the world and it never is. Yeah, HDR was terrible until people started to figure out that you could actually use it to make pictures that look, you know, like what you really wanted it to look like. Yeah, you know, and then then of course our cameras now are experiencing greater dynamic range and you know yeah now it's normal right to to take your iphone point it at a sunset and see detail both in the sky and the ground what that's what we've always wanted but we couldn't just have it on a whim now we can now we can well this has been great great fun to talk to you and uh thanks for inviting me to come along well, I'm I'm just really happy that you that you did and that we were able to make it happen. Um, so thank you again. There will be links in the show notes to your photo history course. I actually one of the things I loved about that course was that you you put it up fresh every time you deliver the course. So I think I sat it four times, but every time it was a little bit different because you were always changing the notes, and it was wonderful because although the the, the big picture arc was universal, I still learned something different every time. And of course, repetition is kind of a good way to make something really stick. Um, absolutely so i i have to yeah. say i really enjoy doing that course multiple times um so well, i, I recommend you. to the listeners that they you know they make use of that wonderful resource you've put up there for free thanks so much okay well um as, as i like to say at the end of uh, of these shows um until next time happy snapping even though i've already said happy snapping i'm going to jump back in here post recording um and just uh throw in a few messages as we would say here in ireland um First off, I just want to thank Jeff again for agreeing to give up his time and be on the show. It was, you know, it was great to chat to him. And I hope we had a little chat in post-show. There's there's a few other topics we might cover again in the future, so you may hear Jeff's voice on the show 
at a later date on different topics. But anyway, um, there will be links in the show notes to Jeff's photo history course, which I strongly recommend you give a listen to. Uh, also to episode 35, which is the last time Jeff was on, if you enjoyed this. And to Jeff's homepage, where you'll find some of his photography. And you'll find all of those links at the show's website, lets-talk.ie. Now, while you happen to be there, you will find that there is a collection of large blue buttons under the heading Support the Show. I want to thank everyone who has and who continues to and who does and who will support the show. And also to ask anyone who hasn't yet considered it whether or not they might consider it. Um, This show does not have advertisers. You may have noticed that at no point did I do an ad read or did I interrupt the show in any way for ads. The show's website is completely free of tracking cookies and ads and any of that kind of stuff. This show is listener-supported. My goal in podcasting is to break even. That's... As a podcaster, that's what I want to achieve because I have a day job. So the podcasting is not to live off. It's something I do for fun, but it it has to break even because if it doesn't break even, I can't afford to do it, unfortunately. Um, and breaking even is not as simple as just, well, a little bit of web hosting and we're done. There is also recurrent you know, software costs as, you know, apps come and go. And there's also recurrent hardware costs as, you know, mics come and go. So when I say I wanted to cover itself, I, I do mean that in a sort of a broader sense than just the hosting bills. But, you know, even the hosting bills and stuff are not nothing. So they, they, they're they kind of important too. Anyway, you can support the show in sort of two broad categories of ways. You can support the show by spreading the word and you can support the show financially. And they are, of course, not mutually exclusive. Um, so simply telling your friends who would be interested in photography about the show is supporting the show. Tweeting about the show is supporting the show. Reviewing the show in iTunes is supporting the show. Reviewing the show in any podcatcher is supporting the show. So ju- you know, just spreading the word is supporting the show, and I really appreciate everyone who does that, because, again, the show only gets advertised by your word of mouth or, or your word of keyboard, I guess. So I really appreciate when you do that. Um, If you want to support the show in a more practical sense, i.e. financially, there's a couple of ways you can do that. Um, You know, to support the monthly running of the show, the most effective way to do that is by becoming a patron on Patreon. And the idea is that you pledge a small dollar amount per episode of the podcast I put out. Um, And because of the way Patreon works, it's... Per podcast episode I publish, which means it's one photography, one Mac. So if you want to give me $5 a month, pledge $2.50 because it'll be one photography, one Mac per month. Um, the great thing with Patreon is that it's a very, very efficient way of giving small dollar amounts without it all disappearing on fees. Because if you give a small dollar amount through a service like PayPal, pretty much everything goes on transaction fees. And there's almost, you know, less than 50% of your contribution is left. In fact, if you give a very small dollar amount it's actually possible for the net to be zero. I have actually received PayPal transactions where I see, oh, someone has donated you money. Great, I look at the transaction. It goes, total amount, transaction cost, net, zero dollars. It's like, okay, that's not what the person intended. So that's why Patreon is so amazing. And of course, the great thing with Patreon is it comes in every month. I have bills coming in every month. I take the Patreon money. I apply to the bills. They pretty close to balance out these days, which is great. Um, but like I said, there's other costs too, which are not recurring, but they do recur. Um, they're not regular, but they do recur. Um, and for those 
the PayPal donation button is fantastic because it basically allows you, you know, on a whim or when you're you have the money or whatever, just to throw me a somewhat larger than, you know, one or two dollars amount. And at that point the PayPal fees become fine. They're not an issue. Um, anything above five dollars really in the PayPal fees are perfectly reasonable. And it's a great way to allow me to do some software upgrades, to allow me to do some hardware upgrades, um, those kind of things. Actually, just at the moment, I'm hoping actually that the Patreon money could go up a little bit so I can afford to enable some of the more premium features in WordPress, um, particularly the automatic blog backup. I kind of like to enable that. So I have a cloud backup of the website. So a few extra dollars a month would actually make that possible, which would be very nice. So that's one of the things I'm considering at the moment. Anyway. I don't want to keep blabbering on. There are also referral links for DigitalOcean, who are fantastic suppliers of virtual private servers. So if you are in need of such a thing, if you use my affiliate code, you will get some money and I will get some money when your spend goes above $50. And there's an affiliate link for DomainRegistrarHover.com. You don't get anything for using that link, but I do. Um, So as I say, if you need domain registrations or if you need virtual private servers, if you use those affiliate codes, it helps the show. Um, and if you're wondering, are they any good? That's, you know, the show's website is hosted on a DigitalOcean virtual private server. And almost all of my domains are hosted, are, are registered with hover.com. The exception being any .ie domain, because the .ie domain is really hard to be a registrar for. And uh, very few companies are .ie registrars and hover isn't one of them. But Pretty much all of my other domains are with Hover, just not the .ies, which means let's-talk.ie is not with Hover. They're with an Irish company who I'm not particularly happy with, so I won't tell you who they are. Anyway, that's definitely enough blathering on. Um, Happy New Year to you again, and I may as well say it again because I have no idea how else I could possibly end the show. Until next time, happy snapping. You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Hi, I'm Bart Bouchot, host of the Let's Talk Apple podcast. Every month I gather together a panel of Apple followers and we digest the month's Apple news. Our aim is to step back and take a 40,000 foot view of all things Apple. We're the perfect complement to the many great daily news shows out there. Listen and subscribe at www.letstalk.ie.